Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is called Run. It is from the album Auto Pain, and it is by the great Chicago band Deeper. My guest today is Nicole of Deeper, and this is a really great conversation, and I would say Nick and I hit it off. We talked for two and a half hours. One hour you get here that you're listening to now. The second hour, I had to edit some stuff out because we got real personal and shared some stuff that couldn't be public. But I edited that out. The second hour lives on my Patreon. You can go to thematdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, and listen to that part two. As you can listen to many part twos of my episodes, go to thematdwire.com, and you could look at my episodes. You could see some of the past guests I've had. I've had some goddamn good ones. And a lot of Chicago bands, just because I'm from Chicago and I love Chicago bands like Bill McKay. I had Macy from Phenom, who's also on the 11th Hour Songs for Climate Justice, an album I produced with Adam McKay and Sub Pop that benefits the Climate Emergency Fund. Go to the show notes and you could see all the links to Deeper. You should definitely go to their Bandcamp or uh, they're on Fire Talk. Their two albums are out on Fire Talk. Uh, buy their albums. They're really great. I, I really love Deeper. Uh, and I was really stoked to have Nick on the podcast. And we tried for a while, and I'm actually supposed to see them live with Wombo, but I, I'm not good at seeing live shows. But definitely uh, buy their records and check them out. Go go to their... their all information for Deeper is in the show notes. And uh, speaking of live shows, I did last night, the night before I recorded this intro... I got to see two f- guests of the uh, podcast. I saw Teke Teke and Fox Bodies together. A phenomenal show. They're both on uh, Kill Rock Stars. But, um, man, Teke Teke. If you get a chance to see Teke Teke live, do it. Uh, they, It's just good. It's just goddamn good. And I will see them anytime. There's, like, great live shows. And then there's great where you're, like, you forget you're standing on pavement and your back hurts and your knees hurt because they're so good. So good. So check them out. Uh, speaking of the show notes, I'm trying to think. There, I mentioned the uh, Climate Emergency Fund. I mentioned Deeper. Go check out all their stuff. Uh, you could also just donate to the Climate Emergency Fund. Uh, that album I put together with uh, Sub Pop is 20 songs, all people who've been on the podcast, with the exception of Moby. But Fake Fruit, Death Valley Girls, Moby... Mud Honey, Phenome, Cloud Nothings, Shannon Lay, Mama Larky. The list goes on and on. It's a great album, and it all goes to a great cause. So please purchase that. The link is in the show notes. As well as if you need a website, you can go to kellyrdewire.com. She does my website. She does a lot of big, fancy podcast people, politicians. Uh, she does all kinds of podcasts. I don't. I just wheezed. I hope you heard it. I hope you heard my wheeze, everybody. And I think that's it for my intro. I always forget something. I don't write it down. I want to be spontaneous for you. Like I try to be spontaneous in my interviews. But uh, this episode is really great. I really appreciate it. And that part two, Nick and I get into all kinds of stuff. We get into a uh, bike delivery accident he had. Old bars and venues in Chicago. Playing with Jeff Tweedy. It's a really great part, too. You might want to check it out, thematwire.com. Enough of that. I'm going to get to the great interview with Nicole of Deeper. Lori Anderson's from Glen Ellen. Is she? That's, I didn't know that. Yeah. She went to my high school. Yeah. Wow. Was that have yeah. an impact? Does, did, do people know that in your high school? Like, do they recognize No, actually, I, I found that out a couple of years ago from Drew, who plays in Deeper. He told me that. So I had no idea. Because <laughs> she's like a pretty vague artist for most people, and I would assume... Like, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I would say that nobody that I knew in Glen Ellen beyond maybe one person I can think of might have known that. But uh, 
Yeah. It's, there was, I mean, there was, a, it was an interesting town to grow up in. Cause like we were so close to Chicago. So like we could get on the train and be downtown in no time, you know? So like when I was in high school, a lot of my friends, uh, it, you know, when they went to like, like some of my older friends that went to college down in the city, we, I would just go and take the train and st- spend the weekend with them, you know? So it was kind of, we were able to go and see music and stuff a lot. Like, you know, I wasn't just like stuck in this boring ass suburb, you know, but there also was like a lot of bands when I was growing up, people playing in like the basements of churches and stuff like that, you know, a lot of hardcore bands, but I didn't like that. I was in a ska band. So <laughs> I read that. I read that. Who were, I was fascinated by that. Cause I also read that you hated the strokes, which I'm guessing was roughly around the same time. Yes. So, you know, I'm, I'm 30 and I feel like by the time the strokes were like, when I was starting to be into like bands that might be good, like, like the strokes, like, cause now I, I do kind of like them yeah, perfectly honest with you, but, uh, uh, I just think they were like super mainstream. They're like on like the third record or something, you know, and it just, I didn't, I would try to reject MTV cause it was like when MTV started turning into like, reality television you know and i guess it just it was lumped into that category I, I i wasn't a big fan of a lot of those groups i i uh you know was obsessed with wilco probably in high school it was like one of my favorite bands and then i, don't know, I have a lot of embarrassing things that i listened to it wasn't until i met um mike who me and him kind of started deeper together that i started listening to good music I had, I mean, in high school, it's, I think you're forgiven. Not like, that's yeah. not me forgiving you. I mean, not that Wilco is bad. I just like, you know, I feel like that was like the, you know, most of my friends were listening to like fish and like grateful dead. So like for me to like, listen to that and like, I don't know, modest mouse and stuff like that was weird for them. You know? Yeah. I remember. I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. Sorry. No, I just, I had shitty taste in high school until somebody was came along and then it was like, and I'm obviously I'm older than you. Uh, but then it was like people turning me on to like the violent femmes and, you know, Jonathan Richmond and punk and all different kinds of shit. So that was when it was like, I was like, Oh, I don't have to listen to the loop. <laughs> Is the loop still yeah. a thing? <laughs> uh, no, I think they got rid of it. Or CKG. Mm. CKG was the other one that everybody, and it was all, I mean, that was it. Classic rock was it. And if you veered into the violent femmes or anything punk or new wave, you, you know, you got your ass kicked. Yeah, I remember like getting in a huge fight with um, one of my childhood best friends. Like, I had my my brother had like a burn CD of of um, I forget what record it is, but it was a Moss Mouse record. It was like an EP that came out, and um, I was playing it, and I really liked it. And my friend kept on making fun of me so much to the point where I took the CD out and said, "Here, motherfucker!" And I threw it out the window, you know, because I just you know. They're such dicks. People, people, uh, people in the suburbs, man. They're they're ruthless. I don't get the the weird like. There's a territorialism about like music. I don't know if that's the proper way to describe it, but like, I yeah, I think so. I think that's a good point. There's like gatekeeping type of thing where like also I feel like where certain ones of my friends like if they listen to stuff before you, like you're never allowed to like have them be your thing and not as much anymore like i've given that those kind of people up but like <laughs> you know i hate I, that shit i can't figure out because like when i was a kid and my suburb streamwood is fucking racist and shitty and almost everybody i went to high school with is a fucking trumper everyone who kicked oh, my yeah. ass is a trumper which was everybody <laughs> <laughs> but but i'm like like <clears throat> you couldn't listen to disco or like it, like people didn't listen to music by black artists. Like it was like because they were racist yeah. pieces of shit. And then if you listen to anything new wave or punk, you were gay. Like it was just like this fucking small minded shit. And I'm like, who fucking decided that? Like how does that come about? Why is that? I I bet you. It's, I mean, I wonder if it's different now. You know, like I want to think that there there are a lot of cooler kids. You know, I changing. Think so. You know, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. Cause Sorry, I, I'm saying I don't know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I did that out. But, uh, um, 
But like, I feel like because like if I would have dreamed to have a fucking music app as a kid to listen to whatever the fuck I wanted would have been like a dream come true. And I'm not even a musician. I'm like just a fucking dork who likes it. Like for you, that must yeah. have been a different. I mean, getting like a LimeWire was like the first thing I got where I could just download whatever I wanted. I know that sounds pretty shitty, but it was pretty fucking crazy. Like I could listen to whatever I wanted. And then now it's like Spotify, like YouTube, like the idea of not being able to hear an album is kind of, it's funny, you know, but I, it wasn't very hard. I would use yeah. LimeWire too, but I would still buy stuff. I would use it to see if I <clears throat> didn't want to, you know, before you would hear one song, you'd be like, okay, I'll buy that. And then you'd spend the 15 to 20 bucks and you'd be like, fuck this sucks <laughs> except for this one song. So that yeah. way with LimeWire, you could be like, taste it out, taste it out. I don't know what that fucking means, but <laughs> let's use it. Sounds good. Let's taste it out. But I still buy stuff. Like there's no way I'm not going to buy stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I do too. Like, um, I don't know, but when I was younger, I'm not gonna lie. I didn't really, I just, um, didn't really think about it being that big of a deal. You know, I guess I never really thought that like, the idea to me that people, if people were like big enough where like you were stealing their music to, I thought they were just already like rich, you know? So it didn't really matter to me as much. And now being a musician, um, and selling my music, I know that's not the case most of the time, especially, well, maybe a little bit of it then was, but like now it's like, shit, it's pretty, you don't get a lot of money. My brother, sorry, side note, get off this a little bit. My brother, if he listens to this, I'm sorry, Jack, but he has this idea that he's going to sell his beats or stream his beats on YouTube. And that's how he's going to make a bunch of money right now. And I'm like, that's a, that's a tough word. He's like, yeah, well, if I can get a million views on a beat, I could get like $18,000. Just like a random beat. He's like 36 years old and he's never put out music before. I'm like, Jesus Christ, my guy. It's a, it's a little harder than, than that, you know? I think... And not to be harsh, but... There is that sort of, like, mentality of where people think, like, well, if I get on a Spotify playlist or if I make it into this, and I'm like, there's still a gazillion fucking songs out there for you to compete against. Like, it, oh, yeah. I think people Tons think it's, like, really easy. Like, well, I'll just get in a TikTok video. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing that I feel like you can't just like wholly base yourself off of how well you stream or something like you still got to go out and like play music in front of people. Cause that's just like, I don't know. There's, there's still the ecosystem of like touring where like, you know, you're getting promoted in one town and like you're going to get in front of people that maybe like had seen your name passing by like on, on Spotify or something or like on an Instagram ad but like not until they like actually see you play, do they maybe start following you and coming back and buying records and shit like that. I don't know. I feel like we talk about it a lot. Um, and deeper where like, we've gone on so many tours that we felt like nothing was really happening for us. And like, it's getting to the, it's gotten to the point now where it feels like when we go on the road, it's like, Oh shit. Like these people keep on coming back, you know, and like it was worth it, you know? to be gone and do you see a lot not of, make money <laughs> do you see a lot of the same people like do you start recognizing people at shows oh 100 percent. yeah that's why there's like there, there's this one dude lewis in in london area who he's been to a bunch of our shows out there and every time he like messages us on instagram like i love the dude he's so funny like it, get it we get him in give him like uh you know, guest list spots and stuff where we have last time we were out there and, uh, yeah. Shout out Lewis if he's listening, but those people are sick. They like our music and like, it's nice to know that people appreciate it. You know, it's yeah. kind of, when we put it out, we, uh, you know, the pandemic hit right when we put out our second record and I, like, we had no idea if anybody liked it or not. And, like didn't get to play it in front of anybody it wasn't until like a year after the pandemic kind of like settled a little bit that we even like played shows in front of people. And that was kind of like a cool experience because people like actually listened to it. It seemed like, you know, like people were like singing the lyrics and shit and that hadn't happened to us before. So it was kind of a 
crazy experience, but yeah, I don't know. It's really nice to have music back. I, I got so like, I'd never really not done it. So it was kind of interesting to like, not be able to like play and see my friends. So I had to figure out other things for my idle hands. And I grew, <laughs> I grew weed. I, I made wine. Really? Yeah. I'm still doing the wine thing. Um, it's called communion wines. We're, we're actually going to be legal next year. So we're going to be selling in shops in, in and around Chicago. Holy shit. That's wild. Yeah. What made you get into making wine? You were just bored or you uh, like wine? I was bored in like my, so, um, full disclosure, it's not just me. It's me and like three other guys that are very, um, they, they, those guys, uh, two of them work in like beverage. Like one of the guys is, um, works for a whiskey distillery and the other guy works for a winery. Um, and yeah, we just, I, I had met a guy in Tampa right before the, the pandemic hit while we were on the road and he, he was in a band, this dude, Seth, and he, he introduced me to natural wine or like low intervention wines. He was a, um, distributor down in Tampa and so it was Drew's birthday and we stayed at his, at that dude's house. And, uh, he just like, let us try, try a bunch of really nice, fancy wines. And I just thought it was kind of cool. He was telling us a story about it. And, uh, when the pandemic hit and I, you know, we were back at home, I kind of rekindled an old friendship, uh, with one of my buddies, uh, we had like a falling out with, he was actually in the original deeper lineup and we like parted ways early on. But, uh, we started just like drinking wine together. And, uh, I was like, we first, like, he's a really good baker. So I was, I was growing weed and I was like, well, let's make like vegan edibles and we'll sell them to people and shit and try to, you know, try to make money like that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Kind of illegal, kind of not. You I was know? Gonna say, is but, uh, weed legal in Illinois? Because it wasn't for the yeah, law. It, it is. is, yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't be legal, though. Right. But I didn't do it. And you know, if you want to fucking arrest me, go ahead. <laughs> um, we found out pretty quickly, though, that nobody wanted to pay for our edibles. They just wanted to eat them. So that like was just like not working out. And then... Uh, I was like, well, why don't we, why don't we try making wine or like, you know, like cider or something. And, uh, so we got our, another one of our friends, uh, who's the distiller guy. I'm like, let's have him come over. He'll drink some wine with us and we'll start talking about it. And like, it just kind of like snowballed where, and then we got another, uh, one of the dude's brother is also involved and he like, he has like a background in chemistry. So he's kind of like taking that part up. And, uh, sorry, this is boring. People, no, I'm not. But, I'm fascinated. Um, but yeah, so we just, uh, my, my wife owns a, um, she's a florist and she does like floral design for weddings and stuff. So she has a storefront in Wicker Park and, uh, she had a basement that she wasn't using. And she's like, uh, do you guys want to just like do it in the basement? So we started sourcing grapes from first from Chile and then we started getting them now from Michigan. We've been doing it for two years now. Um, and yeah, we do it all in the basement and it's been kind of crazy. And now we're working out of a winery, um, in Edgewater. And so those bottles will be, we'll be able to sell those. The other stuff's basement hooch for sure, but <laughs> it's fucking, it's pretty fucking good. That's fucking rad. Yeah. It's like patent. We do like, uh, we're petting at it a lot of stuff and we're doing like weird, like cider piquettes and shit. So like really like, uh, low stakes wine, nothing like too crazy, but nothing stuffy. Wow. And you could, you know, the benefit is you could write your own, uh, commercial jingle, just throwing that out there. That would be sick. <laughs> that would be very sick. Uh, I'll talk to the guys about that. <laughs> I, I think that's, I've, I don't know. I'm impressed. Highly impressed by your winemaking, though I haven't had it, but I'll have to send you a bottle. All right. Yeah. Uh, are you, do you live actually, I want, I can't sell I, I, uh, yeah, I'll send you. (laughs) 
Yeah, there's all weird fucking laws about. That. I used to work in liquor quite a bit. I worked in a lot of bars yeah, yeah. and stuff. We're yeah, we're in uh, Chicago. Did you live? I uh, lived, when you lived downtown. I lived in Wicker Park on and off a bunch when Wicker Park was not what Wicker Park is now. It was fucking rough. Well, hey, it's still it's still rough. Uh, one of uh, Natalie, my wife's employees, got mugged outside of our uh, uh, shop last night. Oh fuck! Yeah, he got mugged. He was, uh, you know, they break down all the flowers after the wedding, and he was uh, loading into the shop after uh, like at like one last night. And uh, yes, two dudes jumped him. They had a gun and. Uh, he didn't have anything on him, but they like stole the keys to the shops. So we're like, fuck. So this morning we had to go there and make sure nothing was like fucked up, but it's all chill. God damn. Yeah. I've wicker park. When I was there, it, it was like, there was a lot of sex workers on the streets. I lived behind the Hollywood grill for a while. And then I lived at, Oh yeah. I lived at North and Levitt and I would cut through the alley by the Hollywood grill and it would be riddled with syringes and bullet shells. It was, Made me feel edgy. Made me feel like the edgy yeah. artist. <laughs> I, li- I lived at uh, Hoyne in Evergreen. That was my first apartment. Yeah, I, don't, I can't. It was. I like vaguely. It's a. Uh, it's just uh, south of the Damon Blue Line. Oh, right on. Yeah, uh, the f- first time I scored coke on the street was in Wicker Park. <laughs> that sounds. That sounds like yeah. That's still happening. <laughs> did you? When you were living there, did you have any friends that lived on like Milwaukee? Um, in like the main strip where like you could walk on top of the roofs and go to different people's houses and like I never party hop did that. But I know people who did. And I had a friend of mine's boyfriend had a, like a studio on Milwaukee. And then like a lot of people lived in the Flatiron building, which was really oh, yeah. fucking rad. Yeah. And it, it was a cool place. My, my brother and his wife lived there right by the Sultan's market, which I don't know if that was there when you were there, but over on North Avenue, um, Chicago people know <laughs> now the Sultan's Market right there. My brother lived there. His his wife bought a place there in like 2010 or something like that, and it was like a little condo. And she sold it this or last year, and they moved to the Burbs because they have kids and stuff. Um, and yeah, they made a killing. It's crazy that area is just like all all that like the idea of like affording being able to afford a house, Chicago. God, it was like, doesn't feel like it can happen. It was so fucking cheap. When my rent in granted, this is like the nineties, but I paid one fifty for a three bedroom, two bedroom at North and Levitt right there at the fucking bus stop. Granted. Yeah. There was a time a homeless guy took a shit outside my door, but (laughs) we need those kind of things though. You know, we don't get that that much anymore, you know? And it wasn't like I missed that. It was in the hallway. It wasn't like out front on the sidewalk. It was like so. And my landlord took for like it was like there for weeks. And because I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but cheap rent, cheap rent, man. Uh, I wanted to go back to Glen Ellen. It's funny because I can I have can envision my friend's house when I say that. But so you were in a ska band. When was the turn from like ska and what you say? Maybe you didn't have the best taste in music. I think I'm quoting an article. But then like and then you started getting into Modest Mouse. When was that turn? And then when did you start going sort of in the direction of deeper and making the music like? Um, full disclosure, did not like uh, ska music either. I just. Um I had like a really close, uh, group of friends and, um, two of them, everybody basically played music in this, like it, in this, uh, friend group. Um, and none of us really played the same kind of music. And, uh, my, who, this guy, Trevor, who was my best man at my wedding, one of my best friends growing up, he, uh, he really liked ska music and he was like kind of the leader of the group. So he kind of dictated, the genre of what we're going to play <laughs> and coming from like a, you know, a town like Glen Ellen, there's really not any culture, like any idea of like that. You don't have to be just like a genre or like, you know, like be put into a category. Cause I feel like it was like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of some things that were going on at the time, but um, it just made us feel cool. I don't know that we had like something that we were like the only ones doing, you know? everybody else wanted to scream and wear like 
you know, like makeup and shit. And I just wasn't really into that kind of thing. Um, and so that happened when I was like in middle school and like freshman year of high school. And then I met Mike Clausen, who, um, I started deeper with him and Shiraz with, um, we, we met in a mutual friend. He was best friends with, uh, my friend, Sam's older brother. And, uh, we were in Sam's basement one day and Mike and this dude, Charlie were jamming and Mike had an orange amp, which is in a company that makes amplifiers for anyone who doesn't know. And, uh, I just said that I thought orange amps were really cool. And I had no idea what orange amps were. I just thought like, I should just know what they are. So I was trying to like puff up my chest and Mike thought that was really cool. And like, you know, he was like a few years older than me. Like I had known about him. His like, all of his friends are really cool, like skaters and shit. And, uh, he just like invited me to jam with him and another friend, uh, Luke Kip Johnson, who I ended up moving into the city with him, with Mike and Luke. And we had a band, um, and so like, basically when I met Mike, I started just like spending all my time with him and Luke and just kind of like taking in all the stuff they knew. Like Mike was really, in, he was going to film school at the time. And, um, he got me into like, uh, Joe Dorowski and like Alejandro Jodorowsky and like, you know, David Lynch movies and shit like that. And really into like, we were kind of really into like, um, Fela Kuti and like psych rock kind of shit. And a lot of like, you know, animal collective was really big then. So like we started a band that, that whole like uh ska thing just dissolved, you know, none of my friends really were that serious about music. Um, and when I met Mike, I kind of just like gave all that up and just started focusing all onto this. And, uh, we started a band called Inkyaplo which is like, uh, what Fela Kuti gave is like his middle name that he gave himself. Super lame. But, uh, we oh, like, like did it. some, like, <laughs> we did some, uh, YouTube, like we were like this weird, like psyche. I don't know. It's like, it's probably on YouTube or something. I was gonna um, ask. but, um, but yeah, like just kind of weird psyche, uh, um, kind of like dubby stuff. Uh, like we like de facto, which was like the precursor to Mars Volta after at the drive-in. Um, uh, we are huge at the drive-in fans and Mars Volta fans as well. So that was like a huge thing for us as well. That like got us to become really good friends. Um, like, uh, sorry. Yeah. I just kind of got into all this kind of stuff and, um, we moved down in the city. Mike was going to the dorms at the time and I would just go and visit him every weekend. And then when I turned 18, I moved downtown and we got a place in Wicker Park. And the first week we lived there, we recorded an EP at this, uh, now, uh, it's not there anymore, but it was called Soma studios. It was owned by the, um, the guy from tortoise. What's his name? John, uh, um, the drummer. Um, but we had Ike Owens, we, we like Mike drunk one night thought it'd be funny to email Ike Owens from the Mars Volta and see if he'd produce our EP. And, uh, Ike responded, he's like, yeah, uh, how much you guys got? <laughs> so <laughs> the first week we flew, we, we flew him in and we, uh, I used all the money I, I made from the, that year working on at the, this golf course that I worked at in Glen Ellen. Um, and like spent all my money on having him fly out and produce this like four song EP that we put out. Did you um, send it to him first or did he just say, yeah, un unheard? Uh, no, we sent him demos. We had some demos of us playing live and stuff. How, how did, how was, how did that feel to have him be like, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, it doesn't, he wasn't doing it just for the money. Was he? I, mean, uh, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> um, I have no idea. He passed away. So I could, I, I couldn't, we couldn't ask him now, but, um, so we, I was a huge fan of this other band called crystal antlers. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're like yeah. a long beach band. Um, and their first EP, and I think it's until the sun dies part one or two or something like that. I can't remember offhand, but, uh, Ike 
produced that and played on it. And it's like so fucking good. Um, and that was kind of what we wanted. We wanted to do something like that with like weird samples of tropical shit added to it, which was kind of all over the place. And <laughs> thinking back now, I'm like, it doesn't sound cool. Nothing like what ended up like what me and Mike ended up doing. But anyway, so, uh, that happened. Um, it was really awkward because like I'm 18 years old and like, he's like almost 40. He's like this big ass dude. And he would just wear like whitey tighties and sleep on the couch and, uh, love you, Ike. I'm this, but this is like, this is my first uh, experience, like having like a real, like, you know, musical recording experience with somebody that I idolize, you know? And he's, he would wake up, I would wake up, open up my, I lived in like, uh, basically, a a double wide, uh, um, closet. I could fit like a slim bed in there, like a twin. And then you couldn't walk anywhere. I just had to like jump in a bed and, uh, I would I open up my door. Thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fine. Actually. I had a, my bed, I had a twin size bed that fit perfectly inside a pantry up on like Fullerton and Southport. And, uh, Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I was 19 <laughs> and it was like, I don't know. I didn't give a fuck. I was living in Chicago. That's all that mattered is that I was in Chicago. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'd walk out and, uh, it would be him on my couch, just sprawled out in his whitey tighties, this old man. And then he, he'd get up when I'd get up and he'd roll over and he'd just spark a joint. And then just like <laughs> all day, that's what he would do. He would just like, while we were recording, he basically just like got higher than fuck and just, just listen to us. And if you liked it, you just be a thumbs up. So it was, I don't know if I would have paid for that experience again, but it was, uh, it's funny. I don't know. Like we were so insecure. So I don't know what it was. I, I really would love to know how he thought about working with us or if he would even remember it, honestly. Um, it was like, you know, only like a couple of days, but it had like such a, profound like effect on me like I was kind of afraid to record after that for a while because I just didn't really it didn't feel natural yet or I didn't feel comfortable playing around or feeling like I was what I was doing was cool cool or good enough for somebody like that and maybe it wasn't you know I mean that dude was fucking pretty amazing um but I feel like I'm I'm not like that anymore, but it definitely was a weird learning experience that I don't necessarily suggest to anybody. <laughs> Do you feel Sometimes like you just shouldn't meet your heroes? You know, <laughs> I believe me. I fucking know that one. Do yeah, you, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, did you feel maybe in some way that you sensed that you hadn't fully found your voice yet? I don't know if that's a stretch. Totally. To oh, totally. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Cause it was like the, the, the singing part, that was like the, that was the hardest part definitely. Cause I had never done vocal takes with somebody before, you know, I'd never really done vocal takes yet. And it was just like me, Ike and the engineer that we hired for the session. And like the other guys weren't in the room or anything. It was just me in this small room with these two dudes I barely knew. That's and I'm vulnerable. like, you know, that's a vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm 18, like singing about things like I hadn't really lived yet, you know? And like, shit happened to me like in high school and stuff. And like, you know, I, you know, it wasn't like completely cookie cutter, but like I hadn't really seen real shit yet. So like my lyrics also hadn't really developed, like my lyricism hadn't really developed yet. So that also is kind of like, I, you know, I feel that way still, you know, whenever you sing something in front of somebody for the first time, you might not be that confident about it. Um, unless you, you know, they're really bitching lyrics, but you know, <laughs> There is an uh, element of like, you yeah. need to be fucking destroyed a few times in life. I think I definitely feel like it's helped me for sure. You know, I've seen a lot of shit, you know, and, uh, and, uh, not, uh, great, but definitely, uh, makes it easier to write a song. That's for sure. There's a great yeah. <laughs> moment in the Bukowski documentary where they ask him about like his father beating him and his response is it taught me literature. And I was like, that is the most profound and awesome way to look at your, the fucking violence that you experienced is what taught you to write. That's, yeah. Instead of being a, a bitter asshole about it, you're like, this is what I am. Yeah. There's, um, 
this uh, Charles Manson interview um, that I put over a drone that I really like. Uh, and it's like, I don't know, whatever you think about Charles Manson, you know, a great guy. for some reason. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, like, I don't know, kind of like a, kind of like an inside joke with me and some people, but, uh, I, I made, I made it and I think it's really pretty. And I one day want to release it under something not deeper wise, but, uh, he talks about, it, it like almost sounds like a motivational speech. And he talks about like how like pain is good for you and like pain teaches you things. And it's like, so true. I don't know. Like it just, you gotta, yeah, you gotta get bit to, to learn a lesson sometimes, yeah. at least for me. When you, so you, I'm curious what you're 17 and you're cruising down to the city, crashing at your friend's dorm. I'm going to guess Columbia college. Yeah. He went to Columbia and then a, a bunch of my friends went to DePaul too, which that kind of group um, intersecting was really formative for me and a lot of my friends. Like that's how I met the guys in knee high, um, who eventually went on to do like dad, like Jason, um, Bala and right. okay. uh, James Weir, who, who plays in spun out the band I saw a few nights ago, like those guys, like meeting those guys and starting to play music alongside each other really was helpful in meeting and learning how to play in front of people, you know? So what do you, you're coming down to the city at 17. What are you doing? Uh, going to parties and pretending like I was a <laughs> freshman in college. I remember being so scared for anybody to find out that I was 17 and in, in high school still. So I like had this little spiel, like if anybody asked, like, do you remember you the know, spiel? just, you know, kind of whatever my, I would basically pretend like I was living with Mike at his dorm, you know, but, uh, girls? I don't want to say any of the girls. Yeah. Basically. Were you getting into bars? Um, I don't remember if we went to any bars then. I think it was when I actually finally moved down town. Cause, uh, my brother, Jack, he, uh, the guy that does the beats, he, um, which I love my brother, Jack, by the way, if that sounded like mean or anything. And I think he does make really good music, but, uh, I just, you know, it was, it was kind of annoying when he said it would just be super easy to get a million views on YouTube. I'm like, I've been fucking trying my guy. Like it doesn't <laughs> just happen. Oh, I believe um, you. I get it that we're, I've, yeah. you know, I worked in, you, you probably totally understand what I'm saying, right? Like it's like people that don't work in like an industry and then pretend like they can just like walk into it and do whatever. It's like, oh, yeah. really? I, cause I did comedy for years and I worked at second city for a fucking decade and people would be like, Oh, I think I could do that. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. You, yeah. Could, you could, just get up there and be funny. Cause it's that fucking, you might crack up. Stand up scares the shit out of me. I, I feel like, uh, you know, I could maybe do like acting and be funny, but like to write a stand up just seems like to be like just a totally different beast, you know? It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like anything though, where you learn there's skills and tricks and things, you know, yeah. That I mean I got I got most likely to be a comedian in my senior most, so it's like basically right. should just get up there, you know what I mean? Do you joke around on stage? Oh yeah, all the time. Uh I uh I've fallen pretty hard on my face uh oh, many a time. I I have many a time. I I bombed in front of two thousand people. I think it was two thousand, might have been more. Did you go to college, first of all? Did you t- um, I went to community college. I went to Harold Washington City oh, College. Right. Um, I, I didn't get the best grades. I, I like from a young age. I just wanted to pursue music, so that was kind of my end all, be all type of thing. You know who um, don't get good grades? Brilliant people. Brilliant original. That's what I, you know. What? See, thank you. Uh, that's what I always try to tell my parents. You know, but uh, <laughs> no, my parents are super. Are, are super great. They, they've been very, um, supportive of it my whole life. And, uh, my dad That's was great. just like, you know, he's like, go downtown. You live in like, you live close to the, you know, best city in his, he always says Chicago's the best city in the world. And you know, he's not wrong. Let's I, go. I fucking, fucking love it. I fucking town. Um, so you know, I just, I just moved down to the city and I got my gen eds done, but I really didn't give a shit. I, I didn't, I don't know. I never really saw myself working, um, 
at like a desk job or anything like that. I've done, I've been working, um, in like I used to repair coffee equipment for years, espresso machines and such, and, and help build like, uh, um, coffee shops out. And now I, uh, I, I work in a wood shop, so I'm a cabinet maker and build like bars and shit like that. That's cool. So, yeah. Some trade, like tradesman stuff is like kind of where I've like put my, you know, if, uh, if I'm not doing music, like I want to work in carpentry or something along the lines of that. So man, I, I was trying to figure something else out. I wish I had one of those skills. I can bartend. So when shit, but I'm like getting to the age where I'm like, I just don't mentally have the, like, I don't, I don't, Oh, your drink doesn't have enough booze in it. Go fuck yourself is where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. Cause I also like, I just can't do people anymore, but I don't have like to have a carpenter skill. Like you'll always f- fucking work and you could go anywhere and probably work. Oh yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it feels good. It's, um, I'm definitely, uh, still fairly, fairly green. I've, I've been working in the shop for, um, now a year. Um, and yeah, it's been great. It's like every month I feel like I've, I'm, I'm like, I'm hit this point where I feel like I'm starting to really make strides and stuff and actually understand what I'm doing. Um, but it's horrible because, uh, I have carpal tunnel and, uh, it's like the two worst things I could be doing is, woodworking and playing guitar <laughs> yeah i was you know. concerned like if woodworking you might do you worry that you'll take off a finger all the time that's you know you, that's key though you gotta always be thinking that you're gonna cut your finger off so then you don't cut your finger off you know what i mean yeah the second you for, so the second you pretend like you you forget that you're using this like a blade i feel like is when you're gonna hurt yourself kind of thing <clears throat> i mean jerry garcia but, had part of yeah, he had yeah which one i think it was like his ring finger on and his Django reinhardt Django reinhardt had like his fingers were fused from a fire so maybe he actually would be fine <laughs> see gotta i do i do have like a pretty like i get uh tendonitis in my thumb so like the past few tours have been like super shitty like uh i like uh like my pinching just gets all fucked up and the the motion of like holding a pick and uh i've been talking to like a hand surgeon i got like i gotta i might have to get surgery on my elbow so like compresses there's like a compression part of my elbow that then like affects my thumb tendon it's it's fucked up getting old man just hit me like i turned 30 and my hands give up you know my back hurts all the time I, I hear you, my brother. <laughs> you're like you. You're not old, you know. I'm. I'm, I'm 54. I just turned 54, so I'm. Uh, and like you're 54. Yeah. No way. You, I know, dude. I, what do you drink? What, how much water do you drink a day? You look great. I drink coffee. I drink lots mm. of coffee, and I did a lot of drugs in my youth. I don't know. Damn. <laughs> i don't really i don't do shit anymore i'm pretty square i read i read at night that's my big uh um, gonna start reading more drew reads a lot on tour and it's annoying because he's like reading these like big books and he gets them done and i was like ah, it's i can't i can't do it anymore what, i don't know if i ever could do, what do you do to like sort of inspire to me i feel like i gotta take stuff in because it helps me create that's for me but maybe um, and I'd like to keep my brain. I like, I don't want to go mushy. I, well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is like the opposite of reading a book, but I like to watch movies in, you know, TV, which is not good for you, I guess, but it also Depends like, there's a lot watching. of cool, cool stuff. Yeah. I don't like to watch garbage shit, you know? Yeah. Cause you, you, um, you mentioned some filmmakers names who I don't remember, but like, I feel like, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yeah. For those. You should, people should watch El Topo or Holy Mountain. Really good movies. Um, like I was watching when I first had a kid, I was like, you know, it just like you just, because you're tired, you're like, okay. And so my wife and I would just watch anything. And after a while, I was like, this, I don't fucking want it. Like my brain doesn't feel good. So, yeah. I, but if you watch something that's thought provoking and f- feeds your brain, then I've been I've been uh, fucking with the new White Lotus, but oh, I don't. I it's like it. not really thought provoking, I guess, as much as it's just like really cringy and amazing writing. And I don't know. I, I guess I don't really get a lot of uh, inspiration from 
TV and film though, I, I think really just like, uh, I've had a lot of, uh, kind of interesting experiences in my past and I, I really tap, I like to tap into that kind of stuff and revisit it a lot. Like, um, we've been working on a new deeper record and are just about done with it. And I think a lot of it was like written during like the, literally the first week we got home, I wrote the first song off this new one. And, uh, it, the way I like to write lyrics, especially is like, uh, I'll make the music first and then I'll do just a pass of like off the cuff lyrics or vocal parts. And, uh, then I'll listen through and I'll pick up like certain things that I just kind of said, and then just build off of that and keep on building. Cause I feel like a lot of the time it's, it's like already in there. You just kind of have to just speak. At least for me, I have like word vomit, which people might get that from this conversation, but you know, <laughs> it's like, you just need to put a mic up to me and, and I'll go, you know? So, um, yeah. So I feel like that's kind of like my favorite way of capturing something. And I, like every single time I do that, I read back or listen back and I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. I totally know where that's like, it's like most likely going to be something that just happened to me or happened to me a couple months ago. And it's like just saying it in like a more interesting way, <laughs> you know, try to hide it as much as possible. So nobody knows what it's talking about. Like, you know, it's like, I got in a fight with my wife and like, I don't want her to know, you know, it's going to be on the record or something. <laughs> Uh, when you, did you, cause you said you'd seen some shit in your life. Was that once you got to the city, you started seeing some, cause you know, living in the city can be a hairy fucking experience. Um, yeah. Um, for the most part, you know, like, I don't know, like, I, I don't really want to go into like my parents or anything like that. Or like growing up, my, my family is, uh, my parents would say when we were kids was dysfunctional, you know, like we were, we were always joke over we the loudest people on the block, you know, and me and my brothers were definitely up to a lot of mischief, but yeah, it wasn't really until the sub until I left that like, I started to just kind of experience a lot more, you know, getting robbed for, ex- for instance, or like friends getting robbed, friends dying, you know, like a lot of that kind of shit. And just, uh, that's pretty young. Just kind death. of, I mean, you're, you know, to lose a friend. I, yeah, I remember my first, my first friend, uh, my grade, I don't know what it was, but we got hit really hard with opiates and, and just a lot of car accidents too, which probably were due to people drinking and doing drugs and stuff like that as well. But yeah, I had a lot of, a lot of friends that got hooked on heroin and, and Oxycontin and stuff at a young age. And, um, some of them survived, some of them didn't, you know, and it was just like learning from that. I never fucked with that kind of shit. So I never had that problem, but definitely seen a lot of my friends who didn't get out of the suburbs. They, a lot of them got hooked on that or, you know, um, just, yeah, just kind of like never growing up, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thing, but um. Yeah. Yeah. Shit fucking, just happens. Yeah. Fucking opiates, man. It's just fucking ridiculous. I thankfully, like, I knew to avoid that one too, because I was like, I knew I'd like it, and I knew it'd fuck me. <laughs> like, yeah. I uh, I recently got. Uh, I was recently in the ER. Um, I got mauled. Um, I didn't even see that. I did see. I noticed that earlier. I had to break up a dog fight and, uh, I got hit like one of my, like a superficial, like artery in my palm got hit and like I was squirting pretty bad. So Fuck. we called the ambulance. Uh, uh, they took me to like the trauma unit and, uh, they get me there and, uh, they're like, uh, you know, get me in like the, like in like the gown. They like, you know, hook me up to an IV and everything. And, uh, they checked me out and like it, like the bleeding had basically stopped, um, from like them wrapping it on, in the ambulance. So they like, kind of was like, Oh, he's fine. And, uh, they shot me up with fentanyl and, uh, 
Dude, it was insane. It it was like the best feeling I've ever felt in my life. I like did gave zero fucks about my hand like being possibly never being able to use my left hand again, which it's fine, you know. But uh, it was funny. They like shot me up, and then uh, the cops had to come and, and question me because it was a dog bite, and uh, <laughs> so I'm like higher than fuck, and I'm talking to these guys. I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like I don't, no, nothing's wrong, you know. Um, and they left, and then they they just left me in the in the corner of the trauma unit for like five hours, and then finally cleaned up my hand and called Natalie to pick me up. <laughs> that sucked. <laughs> that was a pretty shitty experience. Did it? And that. Sorry. What? Oh, go ahead. I was. I was just. Uh, I did use some of that for this new record. I have a couple of lyrics uh, talking about my hands getting fucked up. So I, I pulled from it. Good. I pulled I, mean, I pulled from it and pulled through. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're supposed to do with that stuff. Was the When you came to the Chicago music scene, did you find it welcoming? Because I fucking love and have followed the Chicago music scene forever. And I just, uh, I always love hearing what people's takes and experiences are with it. Um, yes. And no, I feel like with anything, there's always like a cool crowd and a not so cool crowd. And I definitely felt like I was friends. Like when I went, when I first, um, started experiencing like the DIY scene, um, in Chicago, the, the people that were running the scene were, um, so much older than me. And like, it was like cave was a, was a really big band. Um, cave in this band called maybe nude sunrise wasn't that big, but they were big to me. Um, and those guys were always really nice. Now, I don't, I don't know the cave people, but like those were kind of like two bands that I really, um, loved. And, uh, I remember going to a show in Pilsen when I was like 18 and um, it was like the nude sunrise house and they heated the house with their oven by just opening up the oven and, and having it cranked up. It was super sketchy and uh, <laughs> they just played like weird noise music in their like bedroom basically to like, it was like 15 people and uh I didn't know anybody and nobody knew who I was or who I was with Mike. And it was like so awkward because we're just in these people's homes and like trying to like, not feel like, you know, I feel like everybody there knew each other, but uh, (laughs) they didn't know us. So that was kind of like, I remember like my first real experience going to a DIY show. And then, you know, after that I started to like, kind of like care less about, being the odd man out and you know i've met so many of my friends through that so i'd say it's pretty welcoming if you allow it to be but you know it can be kind of scary i don't know how it is anymore because the the kids that are running the diy venues now are just so i don't know they're really cool we got like a really cool young scene happening um bands like lifeguard and uh horse girl um and there's like this band Frico that's really cool and soft and dumb. Like, I don't know if they're all part of the same group. I know horse girl and lifeguard are, but I, they're making really cool stuff and they're exciting because I feel like they're taking the, the like torch for lack of a better term, um, like the DIY torch. Cause that was, that was like the biggest thing about, um, coming into this scene more so than I feel like some other cities that I've, experience their music scenes more of, you know, like we, we've had a really tied in DIY culture for years and years of passing down venues or like people starting new venues. And I feel like that studio, like we have art schools in Chicago and people go through college and start DIY venues. And then once they get older, they either move away or they start working at the empty bottle or something like that, you know, which is what happened with all my friends. Um, everybody who ran like DIY venues or like was playing in the bands, they ended up started working for like, you know, the empty bottle, Thalia hall, Lincoln, Lincoln hall, you know, those kind of things. And 
because of that, they let us open up for bigger bands at those venues. And then we got to headline those venues and such. And so it was kind of a cool ecosystem of friendship and people making art and shit like that. That's cool. Cause I know like scenes in general, and I've heard it a little bit about Chicago where it's a little clicky. And then there's the, <clears throat> I mean, every scene is clicky, but like when I was in a scene and I was the new guy, I fucking hated those older guys who wouldn't let us in and they were fucking yeah. snobs. I'll give names if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> and this is comedy stuff. And, but then I was like, when I got to that on their side, I was like, I'm not going to be those motherfuckers. I'm going to yeah. welcome everybody because that's the way a fucking scene should work. Like it should be a community. I, I agree. I agree. We should be helping each other. You know, what's good for one person is good for, you know, I think like helping somebody else out, it's just only going to help your, your act out too. Like, which I feel like, um, like going back to like, uh, knee high, for instance, like they like hit it big, pretty out of the, like pretty much out of the gate. People really enjoyed them. And they were kind of like, one of the big up and coming Chicago bands and they like, they would always make sure that their friends were coming along, you know? So like they would have us open up for them and we would get in front of audiences and more people. And so I think as long as you're, and that's kind of how we feel too. Like we try to like, when we're playing shows here, especially and like we think about a lot for future touring, like if we're going to bring out a band, we're going to bring out somebody that, we want like to, you know, lift up with us, you know, and we're always trying to make sure that we're like, um, having people, you know, giving friends and in, in good bands that we appreciate, you know, like we're, we, we think thoughtfully into like who like we want to open up for us and stuff like that. You know, I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. It's interesting to me because people, some people get a certain status or whatever, success status, whatever you want to call it. But it's like, and I've seen this, where then they're fucking shitty to the people below them, but then the guy below you goes up to here. <laughs> so and like, they want to be friends. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, didn't you fucking f think this through, you fucking idiot? Like, your fucking status yeah. means nothing. It could always go away. You could fucking lose oh, yeah. both of your arms in an accident, and then guess what you're not doing anymore? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you're the I think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all fragile, and it's all... The, any and I've had fucking moments of stupidity where I'm like, I'm the fucking man, and then, then you know, life goes. Guess what, pal? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel, yeah. I feel like there's definitely still some of that every once in a while, but for the most part, it's kind of chilled itself out. Um, I don't know. I think back at like guys that maybe were running around when you were there, like Brian Case from yeah. uh facts and he disappears did the, he and did the podcast oh he's he's awesome he, you know him. um he he's always been i mean he helped me get my job at the wood shop so he works at one of the bars or used to work at one of the bars at the restaurant group that i worked for owned and i hit him up i needed a job and he got me a job doing this shit you know so that's great um i feel like those dudes like you know he's from like scenes, you know, he's from the nineties and like with 90 day men and shit like that, which they're just putting out stuff with numero group now, which is amazing. Um, like, you know, he's been around forever and kind of like, I think like a guiding light to a lot of us younger guys that are trying to make interesting That's guitar great. music, you know? So definitely think he's, I, I wanted to bring him up when you were asking about like, you know, like how it felt going into that. He just, he wasn't necessarily a part of the DIY scene when I was coming up. Cause you know, he was kind of crushing it at that point with Steve Shelley playing drums with disappears, and shit like that. you know? So I only saw him at like venues and stuff, but, um, now I've gotten older and, and I, I would consider him a friend for sure. But, um, uh, yeah, those guys are the best, you know, is it all pretty intermingled? Cause does Albini come around or does he, no i've never met him i've i've done work at um electrical audio um but no I, i've never really seen him around i don't think you know he i don't think he really wants to be a part of any of that kind of thing and maybe and maybe if he is like i don't know he's not hanging out the same places i'm hanging out at yeah i think but, i think he's just pretty much a homebody is the impression i get yeah it's funny people People talk about him like he's from Chicago all the time, and I know he is, you know, and it's like, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I never really had that much a 
affection for the Albini thing. You know, it's like some, some people are like obsessed with it and like always asking about it, especially like if you're like, Oh, you're from Chicago. Like, you, you know, Steve Albini and stuff like that. It's like, I don't know. I guess it's funny. It's like, it's probably it struck also, a chord. also a generational thing. Cause like my era, it was like, everyone was like Albini and it was like, you know, he just done every fucking cool album of the, 90s. True, yeah. And his when I worked at Second City, his now wife was the house manager, so he was always in our orbit in some way or another. Yeah. But I could, you know, he's a complex guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is like everybody talks about how he's like mean to work with or something like then like why would you want to work with him, you know? Like I want I want to be nice. I've never heard him that. I heard he's like a dick about music or he's publicly a dick about what he th- maybe that's maybe i'm I think i'm creating a, something yeah i think he's opinionated you know? but anybody i know who's worked with him has said like he's very like hands off and no, I, i've heard that too and i'm like i mean don't people want him to be more hands-on though isn't that the point of working with him i don't know i think you know do you go in knowing what you get i think he you know definitely puts his influence in like you listen to the jesus lizard or some of those bands that he's produced. And you know that fucking the way the bass is mixed is fucking Albini. Like there's just no two ways about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, is, are the venues still very independent? You meant, cause you mentioned Talia Hall and Shubas. Are those, cause all, a lot of the small venues in LA have been bought up by live nation, which fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, from my understanding, all three of those are still independent. Um, I know there's some live nation stuff coming in and there is live nation shit here, but, um, the, like the bottle sleeping village, the hideout and, um, Lincoln hall Shubas, they've, from my understanding have all kind of been like coming together to help fight that a little bit. Good. Um, it needs to be fucking fought. Oh, for sure. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't think that like for me and my friends and the people that I know in the scene, I don't think anybody's really itching to play stuff. That's not like those kind of venues, you know, like live nation, I feel like they're going to have a hard time coming in and getting the local musicians to want to work with them. Cause there's a lot of, lot, nobody wants that shit. I don't know. Good. But yeah. Because they bought the Echo here. I don't know if you've, I don't know what you've played when you've been in LA. Did yeah, we played the Echo last, or two, we played there with Spirit of the Beehive last time we were out there. Yeah, but they own it now. And a, the person who's my guest on the next episode tells a long thing about how they just fucked him left and right. And it just. We didn't have any bad experiences with any of the Live Nation venues we played. Um, on that tour, we played a couple. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's like it's hard because like sometimes you go into these places and like you don't even really know that they're a live nation. Yeah. You know, I just heard of them. Like one of the guys from Pavement tweeted that they like were taking took fifteen twenty twenty percent of the merch, and I'm just like, go fuck yourselves. Oh, that's super lame. I, yeah, I I heard something like that at like I don't want to. I'm not trying to trash talk the Metro. I've, I've never played, so I don't know, but I heard that they used to do that. And that always turned me off of wanting to play there, but I think they have like different management now. Maybe they don't do that anymore, but it, there used to be back in the, but now I sound old back in the day, old guy phrase. Uh, but like you used, some bands would get cuts of the bar because so like, that's how things have flipped. Now it's like, now they're taking a percentage of merch when you used to get a percentage of the bar. That's fucked up. Well, that's like, that's the thing about like, that's, a, that's what's so funny. It's like a venue doesn't need to make any money off the ticket sales. Really. They're supposed to be making all their money off of drinks. Right. I mean, yeah. you think, and I've managed bars. I know what a fucking bar makes. And I know that they make plenty of fuck. If you have a full crowd at say like the echo or something and it's a packed night, easily making eight to 10 grand easily. Uh, yeah. Maybe even more. Maybe I mean, more. shit. I remember, I remember the bar when we played, you know, there's like eight people waiting in line always. And every drink is like close to 10 bucks, you know, like 
three, four hour show, you're making tons of money, you know, or however long the show is. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. It's so weird to me. Like, it's funny, like as we've gotten like bigger and like, or just like, you know, like gotten a bigger audience, stuff like that. Like it's, it's funny to go back to like when we played shows the first time around the lack of money that was, was available to like now we're like, we're, we can get a decent guarantee. And it's like, well, where was the money then? Like, you know, it's like, that's, what's so hard about being yeah. a band. It's like, especially in the U S like they want to like, it's like, how, how is how are we supposed to survive off of like a $250 guarantee opening up for a, uh, supporting a band, you know, like <laughs> or like going out on out for like a month long, you know, like, yeah, which it's just, it's just crazy. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Remember, you could become a Patreon subscriber, $5 a month, and listen to the part two of this episode. We talk about all kinds of great stuff. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you very much for listening. Please enjoy your day. (laughs) 